Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I have to tell you about these miniature gun models called goat guns. My guy loves building and collecting them. I was most surprised by the complexity of these models. They're really high quality. His dad and friends always ask about it. And if you ask me, these get a little too much attention around here. Shop for yours at goatguns.com. Hey, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bitter. I speak to Jim Suptic from the Get Up Kids on today's episode. And I'm not exaggerating when I say the Get Up Kids are one of my favorite bands of all time. They were kind of one of those, you know, them bands for me. I made a risky purchase of On A Wire at Virgin Megastores when I was 12 or 13. And I think it must have been the first indie rock band I think I listened to. So I'm feeling pretty happy with myself that I didn't go complete stan on uh, on Jim Suptic right here. Let it be known that the Get Up Kids have just started a new Patreon. If you want to support them directly, no middle person, you're a fan of the Get Up Kids and you want them to keep on releasing records that you love, now's the time to get involved in something like that. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you like these episodes, I implore you, please tell your friends, let them know that you're listening to the most awesome music podcast, interview music, interview podcast, there is. This is the only podcast in the world where you get to hear your favourite bands talk about where and when they were when they decided, for better or worse, that they were going to try and play music full time. Text your friend right now. Text them, I'm listening to Giles Bitter. Speak to one of the singers in the Get Up Kids. It's fucking top-notch journalism, good shit right here, and you need to listen to it. I'll give you that one for free. 
East London's signature brew have been brewing music-inspired beers since 2011. They've made beers with Mastodon and Idols and Sports Team and The Darkness and a whole bunch of other bands. You can make an order at signaturebrew.co.uk to get a bunch of beers delivered to your house. And with the voucher code 101podcast, you can get 10% off that order. All right, here's Jim from the Get Up Kids. Don't forget to leave a shit-hot review. Cheers! I've le- I haven't learned what my true skill sets are. You know, when you've, you've been in a band for 20 years and you apply for some job, it's like, well, what am I good at? I know how to tune a guitar, but there's not very many real-world jobs that, uh, other than guitar tech, I guess. When you have applied for those jobs, what kind of route have you taken? Have you have you tried to like blag it? Have you been like real honest about that fact? Or uh, well, honestly, I haven't had. <laughs> I haven't really had to do that too much. I, I went back to college, university, as you say, uh, and I have a degree, a Bachelor of Science in Geology. Awesome. And so I, I was working for the USGS for a hot minute. And I'm not sure. I mean, I think I used, uh, you know, just like good at meeting new people kind of thing, having to work with people who are different. And, you know, I think that's, that's really important in any job. Like if you don't, you could have the best job in the world, but if your manager's an idiot or you work with people you hate, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to hate it. Like I've had jobs that sucked, but I had fun because the people I worked with made it bearable. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny. One of our, one of my friends tweeted this, a lot of, you know, quote unquote, normal jobs will spend, you know, so much of their time trying to convince you that you're having a good time and (laughs) none of the time actually helping you feel good. (laughs) Yeah. I've worked a couple jobs where they like very, very, very large corporations that want make you feel you're part of the team and all these things at five in the morning, like team meetings. And it's just like, you know, it's all bullshit. You're just a cog in the capitalist machine, but you got to put food on the table. <laughs> I got into the Get Up Kids. The first record I got was On A Wire. That's an interesting record to start on. I got into it because my older brother had a massive Reading and Leeds poster on his bedroom wall. And you were on the bill for that year. It must have been 2001 or two. Yeah, we played, I, I think we've done Reading three times. We played uh, one year on the stage with Graham Coxon from Blur. And that was really awesome. And we were playing foosball and he picked up uh, our foosball off the ground and handed it to us because it had like flown off the foosball table. And I was sort of speechless. Like there's this Graham Coxon handed me a foosball. Anyway, that was a cool memory. Uh, but yeah, 2000, I then I think we played one year with like at the drive-in played and I don't know. And then when we kind of got back together, we played good times. You know, it's kind of funny. We just had that tiny chat about working at a company that tries to make you feel good because a few years ago I got a job at Festival Republic which you know now owns Reading and I got into that job thinking this is going to be awesome and you know in music there's sort of uh like I have these memories when I was when I was young like the first time I got dropped off at a concert without my parents you know just our friends and we saw Helmet and the Jesus Lizard and Therapy. I remember Therapy. They're like an Irish punk yeah. band. Yeah. And uh, was in the mosh pit. Like it was insane. And it was like this magical thing. Like when the when the roadie came out and was like testing the guitar. And it's just like that magical feeling of like I'll never forget that. And then <laughs> once you do it for a living and you realize, oh, backstage, it sucks. You know, it's not it's not some magical place the curtain is the curtains torn away. And then you, you know, it's kind of sad in a way that that magic every now and again, that magic still happens, but it is kind of that lost thing. Once you do something for a living and you see how the, how the sausage is made, right. Then it don't know if you still want to eat, eat rock and roll. <laughs> Did that, I mean, that makes me think so many things, but, I think a, I think a lot of people, you know, there was that Stereogum article that came out a couple of years ago about you guys and the Promise Ring and and bands from from that kind of time. You know, people do look back with rosy glasses around that time, don't they? 
I always try to say this uh, to my children, but it's like the good old days are right now. Mm. You know, you just, you just don't appreciate it. Like me eating ramen noodles every night, selling CDs to pay my rent, but I was touring and going to Europe, you know, it was like 97, 98 doing like I'm 20 years old. So it is like a, you don't know any better, you know, sleeping on dirty floors, sleeping in squats in Switzerland. And it's like, Mm. and I look back now fondly, probably got scabies or something, but (laughs) I mean, I know I certainly went through my, you know, on a, on a much, much lesser level. I went through my period of time where after a couple of years, I was like, this is making me ill. It's a young man's game or gals being in a rock and roll van, you know, of course you lasted a long time you know you're still doing it you had the break but you know you've 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 stood the test of time truly yeah we've been (laughs) we've been lucky and it's it's a weird thing uh you know our band we never became like this massive band we always sort of just i i I always compare it to like a triple a baseball player in american baseball where yeah we got called up to the major leagues a few times and it was cool but you know, we were always like a working band. Uh, but the problem with that is to be a working band, you have to work all the time. And the older you get, uh, you know, starting families, getting married, you know, being gone nine months out of the year, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't work well if you want to have a, a healthy family. You know, you two and Foo Fighters can take their kids on the road with them and flying private jets. But when you're in a bandwagon playing clubs, it's it's just not a possibility. So you kind of have to uh, change your priorities. But we've been lucky that we still we still can do it. We just it's it would be impossible for us to be a nine month on the road type band nowadays. I mean, impossible really now. But if COVID wasn't happening, it still wouldn't be a possibility. How did you navigate that from you know say from two th- early two thousands onwards? I suppose was was there a moment where you realized you know you couldn't do the twenty year old thing anymore? Yeah, well, you know, the Get Up Kids ended in two thousand four or five. Uh, you know, we we broke up. I mean, using air quotations, but we probably should have just taken a break. I mean, we were all just we'd been touring nine months out of the year for a decade, and I think it just finally took our its toll on all of us. Uh, and that why when when the Get Up Kids got back together. I I was very sure that I was going to go back to college, <laughs> like when we took a break again, and and Rob, our bass player, was uh, touring with Spoon at the time, and so he was kind of really busy because they had just put out a new record. I said, you know what, I'm going back to school, and I'm a I'm an art school dropout, and I thought to go, I thought about going back to art school, but uh, ultimately I decided on a science degree, so, so I would be able to get a job outside the music world, sort of like a safety net just in case. Cause uh, yeah, I mean, it gets harder and harder every year, the older you get. And yeah, we're not, we're not Foo Fighters. I mean, that would be awesome. <laughs> I'd love to be a multimillionaire, but I'm a, a working musician. This is what the show celebrates. It's the fact that there are all these, I mean, everyone's had a different story. Everyone's had a different path to balancing themselves to, to help themselves flow basically you got to be you, you got to be really flexible it's like the gig economy you know you can't be afraid to to do to do things like there's no rules in rock and roll in, anymore not that there ever should have been but for example get up kids we're gonna do a, a patreon Cool. And we're, we're right now kind of filming stuff, recording stuff content wise. And that's something I think we may, we really just never thought of, or it was just like, ah, is this cool? Is this something we want to do? And now it's just kind of the new normal. Mm-hmm. And it's like with, with COVID it's sort of made just not artists, all artists and like kind of rethink how they do things and how mm-hmm. can we sustain a living in an era where, you know, obviously you can't tour, but beyond that, you're not selling records. You know, I think I heard that in the United States, the Taylor Swift folklore album, which was released, you know, in October was the first record to sell a million copies in the United States, (laughs) you know? So it's like, 
Wow. The, that, that, the golden age of record sales is, is gone. And with, you know, streaming services, just not, I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's, it's definitely a very small amount of money compared to an actual physical record sale. You know, you got to reevaluate things and yeah, but that's, that's okay. And it's, it's kind of helped our band run smoother, like almost like, which we've always looked at it as a business once we had to, but I think we've looked at it as a business way more than we ever have just because we're trying to stay afloat in these crazy times. That's got to be the smart thing to do because you see so many bands completely disavow themselves from any kind of, you know, business perception. And as much as that's, you know, it would be a nice thing to do. It doesn't work. And yeah. That's how you get screwed over. And what's funny is the young bands embrace it. Like you ask an old, older band, I don't want to say I'm that old because we're not that old, but you know, we started before the age of, of social media, like MySpace was sort of coming about right as we kind of ended in the mid two thousands. So, uh, I think, <laughs> I mean, I think it's just in general, younger people are going to embrace new technologies and try new things, uh, easier than someone's you're sort of stuck in your ways. So I think this, this time has made, has forced us not to be stuck in our ways and, and embrace new technologies and things like that. I can't help but feel that that's always going to be the smarter thing to do, you know, cause maybe you don't like the idea of TikTok or Instagram, even Twitter, yeah. even, you know, when it first came around. And at some point you have to be like, how can we use this for our vision? For sure. It's, I mean, in any business, if you don't evolve and change, you're going to fail, you know, and no one wants to be called a dinosaur, especially in rock and roll music. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. Most people I speak to on this podcast, you know, started in the early 2000s. So they had to kind of navigate from MySpace. You know, I think so yeah. many bands, you know, so many bands when they started, MySpace was the way to be in a band. You know, you get a, you get a profile name on there before sure. you have a band practice. Yeah, we you know we we sort of started at the end of what was kind of the golden age, where bands were on their first record signing like million dollar publishing deals, like things that are like ab absurd now. But we thought it would be absurd to ever sign to a label and give them a portion of your touring income and merchandise income, like that was unheard of. But now, I mean, if you want to sign to a major label, that's good luck doing that without signing those things or you know part of that away. What stories do you have about, you know, labels? I read an interview with Joe Sib from Side One Dummy. I think it was Side One Dummy who, who said no to the Get Up Kids, but then later on was like, I'm an idiot for doing that. Yeah. You know, someone sent me that. I never talked to the gentleman, so I, so I don't know, but there were probably a lot of labels, you know, that, that hurt our band and thought we were terrible <laughs> or whatever, but, Idiots. uh, yeah, I mean, we got courted a lot. Like we, I mean, the we sent out a demo, which was basically the Woodson EP, our first son of thing we put out, and we just sent it to record labels. Like, you know, we're a bunch of kids in the middle of America. Like, I guess we, like, we found addresses for record labels and just mailed them cassettes. And crazy enough, in the week we first week we sent it out, we got a phone call from Slash Records, which is a you know major label, and uh a guy who I'm still fr friendly with flew out to see us in Kansas city and uh, like took us out to dinner and I drank underage. It was like the first time I, I like, we just ordered beer and, and I was like 19, which I mean, sounds silly in the UK, obviously, but in America, you know, you gotta be 21. And uh, so we were like, hell yeah. <laughs> like they didn't even card us. It was like, that was our first di paid dinner. We ended up obviously not signing with them. And then we had signed a deal with Doghouse. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we almost signed to Sub Pop. When? What year? So this would have been after Four Minute Mile. We were getting courted by a lot of labels and we, we really hated our Doghouse contract. I ba basically, the, the problem with Doghouse is that it was kind of like we had signed a major label contract on an indie label. You know, like now our like polyvinyl, it's like 50, 50, you know, it's just like a partnership kind of thing, yeah. which is what, yeah. if you're on an independent label, really, come on. Like that's like the merge record model. Yeah. Uh, so we're like, you know what, if we're going to have a major label contract, let's just sign, you know, to a major label. I mean, and, uh, yeah, my friend Jason Reynolds, who was an A&R guy there, 
uh, I mean, he was, we're friends with him now. We didn't know him at the time, but he was, was courting our band and we, you know, went to sub pop offices, met Jonathan Podeman, you know, one of the founders. And we were like, I mean, you have to understand for a bunch of kids from the Midwest, you never imagined our band would do anything to like the label of Nirvana and these bands yeah. that we all grew up with. And at the time, uh, I mean, Sunny Day Real Estate was like the last kind of bigger thing they had done. Like the, they were kind of in a, a down period. And uh, we finally got the contract and we, you know, we got, I have a sub pop watch. Like we were like, that was given to us. And honestly, the, the deal was, was, it was just like another major label contract. And it, it just, we're like, well, what, what are we doing? Why are we, gonna, you know, it just did, it just didn't make sense. Then we almost did sign to a major label, but that was probably one of the closest we were to signing. Like we actually had the contract and didn't sign it. What was that like being in front of it and then saying, actually, no, you know, we just knew, we just knew it wasn't worth it. And we had a, a like lawyers and just, we just, we had already learned from a mistake of sign. you know, at the time we signed the doghouse contract, we just wanted someone to put out our music and like, mm. didn't care. I think a lot of young bands are like that. Right. Yeah. Anyone and, would be, yeah. and at the time, you know, and we knew what it was. We knew like, this is like a major label contract where we're, we're not getting a big advance or anything. We, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just, it just didn't work out. <laughs> we got flown out to LA by Geffen, met the Geffen people. Mojo Records though, is who we did almost sign with, which I think we've talked about this in other platforms and I've kind of seen like the time, sometimes the timeline's wrong on these things, but that, that was another thing where we had the contract done. So Sub Pop and Mojo uh, and yeah, it just wasn't a very good deal. <laughs> and Rich Egan, ultimately why we signed a vagrant, they gave us a really good, uh, fair deal. And we kind of knew we'd, even if we sold less records on vagrant, we'd end up making more money based on how good the deal was. And that was our ultimate, uh, ultimate decision i don't think we got like some huge advance or anything from vagrant uh it was just like record sales like the percentage we would make was was really good and we owned 51 percent of our masters and when you sign to a major label you you sign away your masters. so basically we we kept uh full control and you have to you have to remember at the time vagrant was not what people think of of vagrant records you know that uh, they had put out like a fa- face-to-face something or other like, uh, cause, cause, cause Rich Egan managed face to face. And I think they put something for them out and they had, I mean, they just had a few releases. We just believed in them that like, that they had the power and they were smart and, you know, and ultimately that label took off some of it. You could say a lot of it or some of it, but definitely signing us was a big part of them getting other bands. Like we were the ones who took the risk uh, and a lot of other bands who I'm friends with and would probably agree, you know, they really benefited from things that we didn't benefit from because we were sort of the, the Guinea pigs, if you will. Chris Conley said oh, that, you know, he, you know, saves the day we're interested because get yeah. our kids. And there you go. There's the story. <laughs> when you sign that, did, you know, as friends, as a collective, did you look at each other and be like, okay, now we're going to, now we're really doing this. Did it change anything? Not really. You have to understand, like we, after four minute mile, we built a really, like we were doing well, you know, I didn't have, like, I officially didn't have another job. Like we were starting a tour and the, I think the interest in our band wasn't from just our demo anymore. It's because we were playing in Los Angeles and 400 kids are coming out to see our band and labels are taken. Like, who is this band? Uh, and it was all word of mouth, you know, like that, that, un- that er- kind of emo scene, punk scene was just like really starting to happen. And, you know, like the band, like Jimmy world promise ring, all these bands we were touring with, we could, we kind of all saw, like you could see these, th- this happening and it's sort of like, when grunge happened in the States, you know, it's like, it was like once one hit, then it was like a feeding frenzy. And we were sort of in that first wave and ultimately, which turned into, you know, the fallout boys, 
my chemical romance where it truly peaked but uh yeah it was a it was a, a weird time <laughs> weird in the sense you were kind of watching it you kind of don't see it like even just like the scene itself i think it's hard to see it when you're in the middle of it and then when you step back you then it all makes sense <laughs> kind of th- like as the story's unfolding you kind of and you're just in the story but of course after hindsight's 2020 right so it's like oh that mm-hmm. of course of course that's why we did this and but you said you know we had no idea i, I knew <laughs> we didn't know before we went and made something at home about what it was going to do or what i like we didn't think this will be a gold record or this will be a not that it was but it did pretty well <laughs> but i don't think we knew yeah. anything other I mean, we were still pretty broke. We were, I mean, even though I was lucky enough that I didn't have another job, but we slept on uh, our friend Kevin Kusatsu's floor and he had five roommates or something. <laughs> we were like living in this house in LA and driving. To, it was, it was insane. It was nutty. Living in LA. Yeah. We lived in LA for almost two months making that record. I think. Something to write home about. Mm-hmm. And we recorded it in Mad Hatter Studio, which is Chick Corea's studio. I think maybe Blink-182 made a record there. And I can't remember. I mean, there were some pretty big records. It was like in Silver Lake, Echo Park area. But I don't think, I mean, that was like the first time of us really making a record. Four Minute Mile was recorded in two and a half days. Because, you know, I mean, wow. it's just abs- absurd. And so this, like, yeah. I don't think... Maybe we had too much time. We kind of just didn't know. And sometimes when you don't know any better, that's when cool things happen, I guess. It's actually kind of interesting looking back because something to write home about still has the noise floor of four minute miles mm-hmm. still. It still has that rattle about it. It's funny. To, I was We were relearning a couple songs from it and uh, it's some of it sound, I think some of the drums sounded really good. It's just some of the things we're playing, like we would never think to do that now. <laughs> So it's, it's almost like when you haven't heard a song in a while or played it, you're listening to it. Like it's somebody else's song, you know, like where I completely forgot what I was playing. It's like, why did I do that? <laughs> like, like I would never do that. I would, I would do, I, I don't know. It, it was cracking me up. I remember flying home and I was listening to it on headphones, like on the flight back. And I, I knew for whatever the genre was, I think we may, I, I, I feel like we made a, a really good record. You know, I think Jimmy world had just made clarity and that record that's like major label money. I mean, that record sounds incredible, you know? And it was like, that was like the bar, like, wow. And they, you know, they had a lot of more money, I think in time to make that record, but it's like, crap, we got to make something as good as this, right? Like this, this sounds amazing. Uh, so I don't know if we achieved that, but I think, we knew it was like for the time and the scene, a good record, if that makes sense. It's actually kind of funny. Like say you and Jimmy world, you know, your bands that would have, you know, you'd be on the same bill around that period of time. Yeah. We, we toured together. We, it's really, you know, it's, it's funny, Jimmy world. I, I was playing in a pop punk band with Matt Pryor and Jimmy world, like jumped on the show. This was when I was in high school. I was 18 or something. Actually I wasn't 18. I was 17. And I just remember thinking, man, I want to start a band that sounds like that. <laughs> and then Matt and I, yeah. And the next time they came through, I was in, uh, I was in art school at the time and, uh, they all crashed, like a half of them crashed at my apartment and, uh, we became friends and had been friends with the guys, those guys since. And I remember thinking, uh, cause you know, we were kind of signing this deal and I didn't know what I was going to do, but all I knew was like, these guys are having so much fun. They're, you know, barely a year older than me and they're on the road touring. And it's like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and we all dropped out of school and the rest is history. Yeah. Kind of funny with that band. Cause in a lot of interviews that they've spoken about those early days, it always came across that they had been slogging it for a a pretty long time before anything happened yeah i mean you got to think like clarity like you think even that record that they were still a club band you know that record wasn't that record got them dropped i think from capital and then they reached then they signed which is which is ridiculous now that capital didn't if capital they just didn't see like 
you know, it's just hard for a band on a major label. Like, and Jimmy world was doing exactly what we were doing. You know, we, we were playing the same clubs, same scenes, and they were building that fan base too. And I think the label just didn't, they were tired of waiting <laughs> and then they screwed it. Cause then the next record was a platinum album and, and there you go. The rest is history, right? So something to write home about came out. How do you remember that? You know, that, that period of time, the, when it came out, it was kind of a slow build, but everything from our band had kind of been a slow build. Like we kept like reaching new plateaus and, uh, and then kind of, it started peaking. We got, we got a green day tour and then, and we were already, <laughs> we were kind of had toured on it our own. And then after that, we got asked to do a Weezer tour right after that. And we were, we were ready to like start working on the new record, but it's like, it was insane. And that, I mean, that Weezer tour was insane because it was kind of like their first real tour back after a long time. And like every show sold out, uh, like instantly. And we were sort of the flavor of the month band like that. Those two tours back to back, I think is what took us, really to the what i would say the next level where when then when on a wire came out we were playing theaters and we went from a club band to a theater band which is a whole change in itself because you have to kind of rethink how you interact with the crowd what your stage show is you know bringing in lights it's just a it, it kind of it's like oh we're that's that's when it was like oh we're professional now <laughs> like we have to we have to really think about these things, you know, before it was just plug and play, which is yeah, punk rock, you know. Did that change the band dynamic? Was there like an added pressure or? I mean, I think after some, the success of Something to Write Home About, there was a pressure. But I think we just <laughs> decided we're going to do what we want to do, which was good and bad, I guess. But uh, I don't know. I think it was such a a slow progression. Like it sort of was all just kind of step after step that nothing seemed great. Like it just was all kind of natural. When you said that, you know, it was like the flavor of the month kind of thing. Did we, did you laugh about that at the time you were aware of that? <laughs> you know, I won't name names, but there is a funny story. That is true. That we had, <laughs> I maybe the names are out there, but it's just, this is a true story. We We had just walked off stage. And we played like the Bill Graham Civic Arena in front of like thousands of people. This was on the Weezer tour. And I remember playing like Mass Pike and the crowd just going insane. Like, you know, it was like 5,000 people. It was like crazy. And this guy like kicks open our dressing room and we had just played. And he's like, the deal's done, fellas. We're, let's get this signed. <laughs> Like something out of a fucking movie, you know, it, and we're just, and it's, I don't know, like just talking to us, like we are like some young, like at that point, you know, we, we've done it. We've toured Japan and Europe and all over, you know, and had a successful record. So we were just laughing and then we just said $1 million and the guys like looking at us like we're insane and go, you want to sign our band $1 million. <laughs> There's more to that. And that person did ended up getting involved with Vagrant Records in a crazy way. And it, it's like, I don't know. It's it's a true story. That's that that's just like that's major label stuff there, man. Yeah, he, I don't think you understand how insulting he was to us. Like he this is like we always joke, like if your record came out on an indie label, it's just a demo. <laughs> You know, unless it's on a major label, then it's not a real record. Those are just, we just put out a bunch of demos. Funny enough, you know, now we're like, our releases are on major labels. You know, Vagrant got bought by Interscope. Now BMG, BMG owns it. And we've only signed to a major label. Actually, we have like, so we have all these releases on major labels now, but the band itself has only signed to one major label. And that was JVC in Japan. That's the only actual major label contract we ever signed. Does that change the deal like now? Do you still get like trickle money? Oh yeah, through? I mean, I get BMG who is who pays uh, pays the checks for Get Up Kids royalties, and I can tell you, I don't think they like the <laughs> our record deal. Like, like we had to go back and and uh, you know they like prove no, this is our rate and this is what you have to pay us. So uh, yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't. They definitely don't like it. I mean, I don't think at this point really they they care too much. We're a small fish in a big pond, but 
uh, it is funny that we had to get our, our manager to like send a copy of the contract. Like, no, this is it. This is their royalty rate. Two thousand and two on a wire. What was what was like home life for you like around then? That's definitely a time where a lot of things were changing. Uh, Matt was married. I got married in two thousand two. Bought my first house. You know, we had money. You know, our our band never. We were never millionaires, but that was like you have to understand to be like twenty three and making really good money. And all your friends are still eating ramen and, and, uh, you know, a lot of them are still in school. It was, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. Like just going out every night. I mean, I, I, mean, I had no kids. I had, a, ha, my house was like the party house going to bars every night, just buying drinks for everybody. You know, it was, it was one of those crazy scenes. And it was, ironically, it wasn't really, we weren't rolling in money but for a 22 23 year old it was like i might as well have been millions of dollars you know buying a house is you know by today's standards insane yeah you know it's funny that i i mentioned this i literally found out right before because i'm renting a house right now i was buying my grandmother's house so it's like even getting in this house is because it was my grandma's uh, i just found out i got the home loan which has been a pain in the butt when you're self-employed. And I thought it should have been just an easy slam dunk thing. But then because of COVID, they're, they're really scrutinizing anybody who owns a small business, their, their income right now, because so many things are failing, which I understand, but it's been jumping through hoops. So yeah. In 2002, you could be like, go oh, to the bank was, and you're like, yeah, <laughs> it was, a you know, not even my income, just they were giving loans to anybody, <laughs> obviously, which is why the, yeah. Obviously, I mean, 2004, you took the break, but did, were you kind of, was there, was there a strain at that point? When Get Up Kids did their, had a big stop, stopping point. Yeah, there was like a definite strain in the band. Like I'll be, I've, I've said this to the band and it, I think it was fairly obvious with my attitude. Uh, if, if the Get Up Kids weren't, so successful and making money, I I wouldn't even have, I would have quit before guilt show. Like I was, re- I was really unhappy and uh, you know, lots of these things have been said, so it's not too much new news, but like I, I didn't have a song I sang on guilt show and I had written all these songs. And even uh, one of the songs our, our manager at the time uh, wanted as like the single. <laughs> so, and it didn't make the record. So I just sort of felt like, you know, what, what am I, what am I doing? And then ultimately Matt, he just, he didn't want to tour. He was done. And, uh, I think we just needed some, somebody to be like, look guys, we need to discuss the future. We, we need to take a break. Like we, we just needed a break. We needed a break and a restructuring of, uh, of, how we're making records and things like that. Cause nobody wants it to be like, okay, I have to have my four songs. And then, you know, cause then that that's when bands start breaking up. Yeah. And ultimately we went back to the old, the way of like, just like how our band was structured before. Like, you know, sometimes I would just bring a song in and here's the song, like campfire Kansas. Hey guys, here's a song. And they just play over it. And then sometimes, you know, Rob, has a cool baseline or something, you know? So it's, it's kind of makes it complicated like royalties or publishing or things like that. Of like who did what, you know? And so now it's just, it's just easier to just, this is the REM model, which is why REM I think stayed a band for so long is like, you know, if I bring it to the band, it's a band song and I have to say, okay, I'll, and if they wanted like this part, stupid, I have to not, you know, it's, which has been hard for me, which is, but that's why, you know, I have had other bands and other outlets after Get Up Kids where I didn't have to listen to, to their opinions. But ultimately, it's a good thing. It's a good because I think at the end of the day, we just want to make the, the best music we can. And it's cool because a lot of like sometimes like the Pope Brothers are coming at something totally different of how I thought of when I'm bringing a song in and sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes it makes it a million times better. Yeah. When he decided to have that break, was that 
I mean, that must have taken a lot of guts, first of all. Yeah, I I kind of didn't know. You know, I, I started a new band called Blackpool Lights. Never been to Blackpool, though. <laughs> I need to go see the lights of Blackpool. <laughs> we have a thing in Kansas City called the Plaza Lights, which every Christmas they turn the lights on uh, on an sh- outdoor shopping mall that was built in the 1920s. It's actually one of the first uh, mall, uh, like um, technical malls in the United States. And it's all... Uh, it's modeled after Seville, Spain. <laughs> so if you go, it's, which cool. is like a sister city, I guess, of Kansas City. In Kansas City, it's uh, when you were too cool <laughs> or had a successful band or something, you you left Kansas City. And for many years, a lot of great artists from Kansas City just left because it was, you know, it was easier either visual art or music or whatever, it was easier to go to Chicago. Like that's where everyone went. If you're from a mid-sized city in the middle of America, you go to Chicago or you go to Brooklyn or LA. And what we're seeing now is people are staying because cost of living's great. And, and just like cool, vi- like there's, there's a, like incredible restaurants in Kansas city right now, really great artists. And uh, you know, you don't, it's like, I think a lot of people are coming to realization, like, I can't afford Los Angeles. I can't afford San Francisco. And I can do with the internet, with the way the world is, you don't, you don't have to be from those places to, to be successful. So we kind of stayed true to, to our roots, I guess. Was that weird in, in 2004 when you did take a break? Did it feel like losing your job? You know what it felt like? Uh, and it's kind of, I don't know. I, I, it's not hard to admit now, but I think at the time it would be very hard to admit. Uh, I lost some of my identity, you know, like everyone, if you've ever studied like sociology in school, like they talk about like a master status of sort of like what, you know, people like when people think of me, they think, oh, Jim from the Get Up Kids, Jim's a father, you know, those are like your master status, status things. And it was sort of taken away from me. Like that was my thing, and now it's and now it's gone. Uh, so I think that even though I wanted, to, to, I did it to myself in a lot of ways. Uh, I was ready. I think, you know, I look back and I think about that time of like, what could we have done different? Like I, I've said, you know, we just needed a break. But at the same time, I don't th- like. It's easy to say those things now, but in the heat of the moment, I really kind of disliked the band like and these are my friends like rob pope and i were in first grade together so these are like my brothers and i think it's and but and part of that is part of the problem too because you're just i don't know other than my wife and kids and my immediate family uh like my nuclear family i don't know other human beings as well as i do those guys and the but when you do know people that well you know every button to push you know every like just a, you know, I think I was watching like the supersonic documentary, the Oasis documentary and like Liam talking about, you know, I can just look a certain way and Noel will go into a rage. And it's like, I, I get it. You know, <laughs> I get that, you know, and I'm, I'm in a band with brothers too. So I, they're their, they're their biggest, like they will always stick up for each other no matter what. And they'll also hate each other more than anybody, you know, that's just, that's the dynamic. But now you're, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting, it's funny. I've, I've self-reflected on a lot of things, which is probably why our band gets, gets along now. Cause we've all sort of just matured and, and kind of see, can see relationships in a different, different way. But, you know, I, of, of the original band, I was the only one who didn't grow up with a brother. I had a sister and I feel like sometimes I I was getting like almost picked on in a cruel way that I think I didn't understand. And it's because I didn't have that di- competitive sort of dynamic that only brothers have. Mm-hmm. I always just had a sister and we were never really competitive. Like once she was in high school, you know, we, we were just friends and uh, my brothers are my bandmates and I've sort of had to learn to accept these kind of things. Like, <laughs> That, that they all sort of just grew up kind of already having this dynamic. It's funny to see that kind of clarity, isn't it? I'm the youngest. And the more I live on earth, the more I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I am the youngest. Yeah. I'm, 
I probably act like the youngest in our band, even though Ryan, our drummer, is the youngest. But That's it's funny. okay. Be be crazy. I mean, what were you doing in those years? I mean, how long did it take you to? So, you know, speaking about a, a part time thing, <laughs> I worked a couple jobs. I. You know, like I said, Get Up Kids are always a working band. So if we weren't touring, I i mean, I, I had royalty income and things like that, but I, I needed to work. I, I started the band Blackpool Lights. We toured. We put out a record. I, I kind of started this record label with some friends that we put out some cool stuff, but it just starting a record label in the late 2000s is like the dumbest decision. It'd be like opening a restaurant the day before COVID happened. You know, it just was people weren't. Once again, now it's like, oh, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? That would have made more sense. But we were kind of like working in an old, old system in the middle of it changing. And so ultimately, that's why I think it it didn't take off. But uh, and then I kind of I had a kid and I realized I got I got to do something because Blackpool Lights wasn't, you know, we we did a couple cool things. We went to Japan and we did a tour with Social Distortion and. But it just wasn't, you know, it was like barely minimum wage <laughs> of what we're making on the road. Yeah. Uh, so I decided I was going to go back to school because I didn't at that time, I didn't see the get up kids getting back together. And so I got a job at a library, which I'd done before. I worked at a library when I was in art school. Uh, so I and, and libraries are like the most non-stressful job ever. And, uh, and I worked at Home Depot, if you can imagine that. And I was just working late, early in the morning doing like stocking shelves. I hated it. I mean, it was a low, it was a depressing time. I'm not going to lie. It was like a low point in my adulthood. And I'll never forget. I saw, I mean, I had toured on this Blackpool Lights. I tried so hard to uh, ha- have these things work out. And Rob was on tour with Spoon playing a sold out show to like 2,800 people in Kansas City. And, you know, I got on the guest list and I'm watching it. And this is not me like envious or jealous of Rob. Like I'm, Rob is very talented and, and he earned what he got, you know, like joining. He, he got in Spoon because he's a badass bass player. You know, that that's how he got the job. So good on Rob. But, uh, you know, I'm watching it and it's just kind of like what the fuck am I doing with my life? And I had to leave early. I couldn't even stay to say good show at the end because I had to get home because I had to be at work at 4 a.m. to go to stock this shit. And so, but, it, but it's also a good motivator. I mean, that's why ultimately why I went back to college later because like I'm never doing that again. <laughs> so being in a band and like creating your own world and then other people jumping on it, you know, getting on board with it, I mean, and then making money from it. That's like to come down from that must feel kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, it's crazy to think like a year earlier, I was like touring Japan and Australia and now it's four in the morning and I'm on this like order picker pulling down 400 pound showers <laughs> from 30 feet in the air <laughs> you know if, but you know sometimes you need to get knocked down in life you know it's it was humbling i've been there before i had been young the the difference now is that i had a family and like well this is this is like real life this isn't just me doing whatever i want i i can't just i can't think that way anymore so that's what like honestly that's what kept me from getting too depressed about it because it, it ultimately it was what it was and now i you know now i work i have a full-time job and i love it i work for a nonprofit uh with the, the drummer of blackpool lights he's an amputee and we uh we help amputees who uh need prosthetic limbs and it's been it's been incredible and we kind of watched this thing grow to this big thing and so now it's kind of i uh I have like a balanced life where I can do this and do some good in the world and, and still play music. And it's not be all end all, which in, which like, thank God I had this job like now, cause I don't know what I, I don't know what I'd be doing. I'd be pretty screwed with not being able to tour. When did the non-for-profit start? Were you one of the first people working there? So yeah, it was, just Billy, he had, he had kind of helped start this in Nashville. Cause he was trying to be like a studio drummer. He actually, the story I'll 
this is kind of an interesting story how all this came about. So when Black Polite started, Billy had this issue with his leg and he didn't know what was going on. He had been in a bad car accident like 10 years early or something. Well, it turns out it was cancer. He had Ewing sarcoma and he was getting like the, he was doing chemo as we made that record. So like the drums on the Black Polite's debut album, he was going through chemotherapy and uh, ultimately they told him like, you know, you can either get your leg amputated or we can try more stuff. But since he was so young and healthy, otherwise it was, that was ultimately decision. And it was like insane. Like it was a really crazy thing. And we did a benefit show cause his, he has like this fancy robot leg. That's like $30,000, even with insurance, it was all this money. So we did like a benefit concert and raised all this money. And uh, yeah, and that was, you know, band breaks up he's doing his thing but he was kind of looking for a career change because he had a kid he was trying to be a studio drummer nashville's a crazy place you know and this thing kind of happened and he ended up moving back to kansas city i had quit usgs and because the get up kids were going to tour and i was looking for a new job and I kind of was having no luck and, but get up kids still wanted to do some touring. Long story short, Billy comes back to town. I kind of like, Hey, you need like some part-time help. Cause I I'm really just, you know, I'm not touring all the time right now. And, uh, he's like, yeah. So I just basically started working 10 hours a week, kind of helping him trying to put on events to raise money. And now it's become a full-time job. Uh, we haven't two, there's another full-time employee besides Billy and I, and like this year, I think we're going to raise over $600,000, which is wow. crazy. Yeah. And our we do this big event now that started like Billy and I, <laughs> the first year we did it, it was called Thunder Gong. And we just, and it started this because one of Billy's good friends is Jason Sudeikis and who's from Kansas City. And he's friends with Fred Armisen and Will Forte. Also, we're on Saturday Night Live. They came to Kansas City and we put this show on and, uh, the drummer Cactus Mosier, who's he's married to Winona Judd, he's an amputee. He's on our board of directors. So Winona Judd sang. It was like crazy, and it raised wow. like like two hundred thousand dollars, which for us was insane at the time. Well, anyway, we've been doing it. This was our fourth year, and we did it online this year and raised like it was crazy. And we had uh, Jack Johnson and Ben Harper. But it was crazy. We got Foo Fighters sent us a, they did a song for it. it's like, it's just insane. So it's been neat to watch this, this thing where we helped. I think the first year I worked there, we helped like 30 people. And this year I think we're going to help 160 people. And next year our goal is to, to help 200 people. So it's, it's been really cool, really fulfilling to, it's been a, it's good to know like whatever I'm doing, I'm not fracking. You know what I mean? I have this geology degree. It's like, dude, well done. That's real. That's a real thing. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a lot of hard work. It's called steps of faith foundation. If you're, if anyone's interested listening to, to check it out and see the work we do. Uh, yeah, it's been crazy. It's, uh, it's, it's been a crazy year. Like I, our goal this year was just to stay afloat, you know, and then to have like such a great year of giving, and what we're kind of seeing is that for all the people that are kind of hurting right now, there's a lot of people who did really, really well, <laughs> like in this, and it's kind of, it's right or wrong, good or bad. But I think the people who are doing really well are feeling really generous. Not that they're feeling guilty, but kind of like uh, they understand how lucky they are in this world climate to, to be like, I'm, I'm blessed. I just have a job right now, <laughs> you know, on top, like, cause it, I would be crazy trying I don't know what I'd be doing because I have a lot of friends who are musicians or all the, our friends who are promoters who own venues and it's it's a scary time for everybody we're booking tours you know looking for end of year kind of stuff and it's like is that venue going to be open <laughs> you know and that's that's insane we had in one week three venues had closed that ghetto kids had played in like the last like couple years, like, and just like that, like, well, like two that were just on tour. But then I saw it was at the deaf Institute in Manchester. Like they, they closed, but they're open again now. Good for them. Cause that was, I saw that. I was like, man, this is crazy. That's a really cool venue. That place. Yeah. We had a fun show there. 
Jim, I mean, it's so awesome to speak with you. I want to do another episode in the future if you're up for that. I've, I've forgotten more than I remember. You know, I think that really is true. Like people tell me, it's like, I don't even remember. Like all tours start blurring together, you know? Do you think you tend to look remember the bad parts or the good parts? The further you get away from things, I feel like for me, the 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 more I remember the good things, you know, and the bad things don't seem as bad. I know that's like, that's just a life, a way to look at life, right? I mean, you could always look at things. It's, it's the half glass full, right? Well, you got a new record coming up. How far are you right? How far are you into writing that? Uh, we got a, <laughs> we're doing them in batches. We got three kind of sort of getting flushed out. And then uh, we we basically took our half of our advance. We bought a really nice computer. We bought a bunch of uh, really good mics. So we're, we're we're really just now starting it. Uh, Rob was living in Massachusetts, sold his house, and moved back to Kansas. So now we're all here, which has been a long time. So uh, it's been cool where we actually schedule practice. Like before, we'd have to like okay. We're practicing all week. I mean, that's how we wrote problems. Our last record, we kind of had to rush through things. So now we've kind of spent like four practices on one song and keep changing it, which is normally not how we work. So it'll be interesting if we don't want to overthink it, but it has been nice to not feel rushed at all. And honestly, I don't, I, I don't see it coming out soon because uh, like we were talking to polyvinyl, our record label and, uh, like, I guess all the vinyl plants are backed up. And so it's, it's really hard to just get anything out because, uh, they had to stop, they had to stop production. They weren't deemed essential. And so all these, it's, it's like a, a log jam, you know? Wow. If you're not touring, then why do we care if the record's out? Like we don't just tour to tour. We want to be promoting something. So we're not rushing to like, we got to get this out so we can get on the road and it's, yeah. So, which is, a, it's actually kind of nice to know that it's not a rush to, to get it done, but we, I, it is nice to just be writing again and just playing music. Cause it had been, it, it, you forget, we did a show at a, like a distanced show was, and we did it as a benefit. It was outside and it was to raise money for a, a, a venue called record bar in Kansas city who are really good friends who own it. And it, it was good. We, we, we raised some money for him and, it was, it was just, I forgot how good it is, how good it felt to play a show, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, this was not, it was weird. It was weird. I'm not going to lie. Like people are kind of sitting spread out, it, it, but it, it was, it was something and something right now is better than nothing. Jim, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate, you know, hey. you being up. This was fun. I love talking about myself. So there he is, Jim Suptic of the Get Up Kids. Thank you so much for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs Podcast. If you liked it, do leave a review. Do let your mates know what they're missing. And remind everyone else just how good this Cox Sparrow song is. Ta-ra! I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue-ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. Every blinking minute I've been on the go. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.